Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. Hi everyone and welcome to Location Matters. My name's Sarah Butler. Today we're going to be talking about how we communicate culture and heritage via maps, particularly in the Indigenous context. It's something that we've talked about a little bit before on the podcast, but we haven't had the opportunity yet to deep dive into it. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Dowding, who's a Managing Director of Winyama, and Marinda Barnes-Father-Scott, who's a GIS Analyst at Winyama. And when we've had Andrew and Marinda on the podcast before, predominantly we've kind of spoken about Indigenous Mapping Workshop and what that's all about and why they do that work. But today, I want to kind of go a little bit deeper than that, and I want to talk a little bit more about the ways that Indigenous groups and communities can use mapping and what we often end up talking about briefly in podcasts that we've done before is this storytelling element for culture and heritage. So Andrew, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And Marinda, good to have you back. Yeah, thanks. Okay, guys, we'll jump straight in. Like I mentioned, we talk a lot about the training element of Indigenous Mapping Workshop and the types of groups and the people that come along to that training and all the awesome work you guys are doing. But I want to kind of talk more about Winyama today and talk about some of the work that you guys have been doing in the cultural and heritage space. Now, Andrew, you've been out of the office a fair bit of late up north doing some cultural recording programs. How would you describe what a cultural recording program is maybe for people who wouldn't know what that is and, and why it's important and why you do it? Uh, yeah, okay. So we've, yeah, I've been up in Port Hedland last week and I've been um, using Google Earth to record people's cultural knowledge of, of landscape. So really like the main thing is that we're recording elders' experience on land and that's like a few different levels. So people have, you know, obviously they've lived on certain parts of country and they've got history connected to towns and reserves and places where they've, they've lived but we're really, you know, the cultural recording aspects goes a bit deeper. It's about really how those elders see the landscape in their minds. So it's kind of trying to capture all of the cultural knowledge that they have about the landscape. You know, so we travel over areas of land like rivers and, I mean, in their case, it's like a whole lot of sand dune areas, desert areas. And yeah, these these elders are picking out important dreaming places or they're recording the names of uh, water sources like soaks and uh, rock holes. And yeah, we're just, we're just ensuring that the names for those places, the, the traditional Indigenous names are being recorded and, and stored and, and managed by their corporation so that uh, if there's any sort of industrial or mining pressures over the top of them that there's sort of early alerts those organisations to, to manage them. They're also resources for the community in regards to having a repository for that information for future generations. So it's outside of that traditional oral dissemination of information and creating um, digital and physical repositories that people can access. Might ask a general knowledge question on that because something that you and I spoke about last week just in passing, Marinda, was um, songlines. And I think that there are probably a lot of people who aren't Indigenous. I know I had to ask you this question, I'm non-Indigenous, who maybe don't understand what songlines are and like the part that they play and when you're doing work like this. Can you explain that? Yeah, so a songline can be different for different groups, but essentially, generally, it is a story in song about places. So it has a spatial aspect to it. 
Is this something, Andrew, that, that you kind of see like in your cultural recording programs is that song lines is something that you are talking about as you're going to these places that are, you know, typically not on the map? Because when we talk about maps in the contemporary context, you're looking at roads and you're looking at places in terms of like facilities and things that the places you're talking about in the cultural recording programs, the way I understand it from what you just said, are places that you wouldn't typically see mapped. Is Songlines a sort of theme when you're going to those places? Oh, they're definitely mapped, but they're mapped in people's minds and um, elders hold those maps. They're really precious kind of representations of country that people hold in their mind. And like Marin just saying, you know, we are like making these representations in people's minds physical. So we're finding the places and putting the pins on, on top of them and, and marking them out. And, and yeah, the elders do talk about song sites a lot in the work that we do you know the thing is some of the stuff in the Pilbara where I'm from is like song lines and song sites are probably like one of our highest and deepest kind of culturally like restricted sites like they're, they're our most sacred sites you, you could call them and so yeah like they're people know about song lines but the the information that is contained in them is is kind of sacred when we're mapping them we've got to treat them that way too they've got to respect the elders might not want to say everything about these song lines but at least stories are tied to their identity and we are we all know our identity is who we are and that is a very personal thing so you have to be very conscious that you're engaging in someone's personal information yeah it's like it's like information that people song lines are things that are gathered over decades of learning and elders that's the thing we have to respect the most is that elders have collated those song lines through years and years of hard work and so there are professors in a sense you know <laughs> like you guys have universities and you have these top professors that oversee yeah. that learning process they are elders they're professors of the landscapes professors of traditional ways this really talks to your point of what you were just saying before when we're talking about cultural recording and we're talking about the ways that you could use those maps and you said you know it it's for the communities but i guess that when we're talking about this in this context with song lines it's like you're actually building those maps for the groups that you're working with just so that they have it and it's just for them yeah that's yeah, it. a lot of, lot of the push for cultural recording projects now is this idea that yeah we you know if we lose the elders that we have currently that this information just kind of disappears and i don't know there's like arguments about that for and against big argument for is that a lot of people are living off country you've got our generation coming through that are finding work you know in major cities and you're not living on country and learning every day from your elders. So you're disadvantaged in that cultural sense in a way. So creating those repositories for those people that have to find work off country can still connect with that. Yeah, that's right. So it's the modern dilemma for communities is how do you get younger people engaged in cultural traditions and, um, and how do you manage that into the future? I think what I've seen across communities all over Australia is that people are learning in this space and we're kind of experimenting and so the work that we do is just part of that big experiment where we're really trying to foresee the future but not really know it and just prepare preparing well for that and we see that as making those intangible resources that elders have tangible and you know with their approval and the respect of you know those elders like we're making those maps available to the the people and the um, organizations that need to manage and to hold them. Thank you guys for, for talking about that. I know that I probably didn't prepare you for that that question, but I think it is a really nice point to talk about because I think like you were saying, Marinda, that, that sort of spatial idea and like that connection to place is something that we see come up 
a lot when we, we look at examples of Indigenous mapping and we're talking about the culture and heritage. I want to talk a little bit more about history and, and not just the history that you were just talking about in terms of songlines and with um, elders, but in terms of like other ways that maps can be used in the Indigenous context to communicate culture and heritage throughout history the good and bad parts. Yeah, so I guess there's a aspect of reclaiming stories. So taking that ownership of our stories, whether that be cultural stories, uh, historical stories, contact stories, some of those stories aren't feel-good stories, but it needs to be out there. And I think Aboriginal people reclaiming that space and telling our stories in a way that we want to share with the general public is a part of all of that. I think when you talk about Massacres, we know from history that very often that massacre is reported in a newspaper or in in some kind of government or white kind of institutional place. In an archive somewhere. Yeah, um, (laughs) and that story is whitewashed, for a better word, and doesn't reflect maybe the true event that happened. And through oral history as Aboriginal people, we have different stories. Obviously, the event occurred, but how that event occurred and how that impacted us is different to how white fellas tell that story. So it's really important that we start to reclaim these places so that the wider population is educated from our point of view and can start to heal and actually reconcile what has happened in this country. At the Indigenous Mapping Workshop in Perth, you actually um, put together this set of mapping icons, which we've spoken about briefly, but actually there was a location pin created and it was quite a, I think there was a bit of a polarising discussion about whether or not that, that um, pin relating to massacres should exist and how do you actually turn that into a graphic? And I think it was a, it was a really interesting one, but a lot of the other pins that you guys created as well were really about heritage and, and culture and different things. Just um, general life ways. So we had like, I think we had one that represents bush tomato. So you're talking about bush foods. So you know, you're talking about that knowledge that Aboriginal people hold to survive, not just that cultural knowledge and that social knowledge that made us who we are. Yeah, there were some other interesting pins that got created during that exercise, like someone put up about wind. It's pretty hard to think about how you could use a mapping icon for wind, but I think... But um, we do know from cultural stuff that blackfellas had windbreaks. Well, and also... And, and things like that to yeah, yeah, make living on landscapes easier. And, and I know from the Pilbara we've got sites which increase the wind like where you do ceremonies uh, to yeah, increase right. wind. And I think like seemingly abstract kind of ideas, you know, in the you know, wider group, uh, wider, wider population, like about how you would map wind is just second nature, I think, in Indigenous mapping. It just shows you know, the complexity of... Yeah, I liked, I liked that, that exercise that we did about creating icons for Indigenous maps because it was just a whole lot of use cases. Like even us, like Marinda and I, as like Indigenous people, like we've got certain usage of land which we would kind of you know create icons for, but people over in like Queensland and Northern Territory, or like people from the desert, or people from Torres Strait Island would have different sets of use cases for country, and to replicate that in in icons was super cool. It was a great part of the IMW. Why do you guys think that we gravitate towards maps and GIS to communicate? this type of information. I'm not saying that it's the only way to tell a story, but why do you think maps feature as part of storytelling predominantly for Indigenous people? Is it that connection to place? Yeah, I think so. You know, it's kind of multi-layered in a way, but Aboriginal people are inherently spatial people. It's a clear crossover. And with songlines, they're they're travelling stories, so that has a spatial aspect to it. 
But I think maybe even from from my, my perspective, when we talk about the beginning, the knitting, the, the the cold time when the world was soft, and those ancestral beings came in and they created places in country, they travelled through country and created a map in a way, and, and that was given to the old people, and that's where our culture comes from. So it's inherently just a spatial concept, I think. Mm, would you agree, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, like we're just saying. There's a lot of just culture that's embedded in landscape and, you know, there's a reason for that and I think one of the biggest reasons is Aboriginal people weren't farmers. Like they didn't sit in specific areas. I mean, we know in some areas of the country there was like plentiful food resources where people could do like eel farming and there were certain agricultural styles like across the country but I think in general it was a lot of living off the land basically and in order to do that, you need, you to, need know. to know where those resources are. You need to have that map in your mind right. to know where to travel to. Exactly. It was like about survival and I know like in the Pilbara, and, and this would be most places I think across the north into the deserts and into the northern part of Australia, but like water resources are basically the thing you need to survive, obviously. And our culture mapped that like out in, you know, in song lines, in just stories. And I think if that wasn't general knowledge to our communities, then it's kind of hard to survive in the places where we're from. So, yeah, there's like this, you know, there's this cultural aspect, which is important nowadays, especially for us to be connecting to our culture and all the knowledge that comes with that. But I think, you know, traditionally, the knowledge about landscape was about survival and about the resources that were there for for our communities to, to share in. I think also in a modern sense, when you look at the history since contact, there is a lot of dispossession, which means even nowadays people can have been shifted around. Our older generation lived on reserves still, so you kind of have that disconnect and dispossession that's happened and using maps to show that also is a way of healing and reconciling what's happened and reclaiming those stories. I definitely remember when we attended the Supply Nation conference in Perth that we were speaking to a fellow, I can't remember his name at the moment, they were doing some mapping around stolen generation, for example, and the ways that people moved or were displaced. So like the other types of stories that we talk about in, in history, like you said, there's the good and the bad, but they're important, they're important stories to tell. Yeah, I think Sorry Day this year, uh, Yokai put out some statistics and I think it's something like 50% of Noongar people have been affected by things that happened through the stolen generation. So that's a huge proportion of my community and that's a lot of stories to tell about how that's affected families today. Mm. I want to talk about some international examples because we're, we are really focused at the moment on talking about Indigenous history and culture here in Australia. But, you know, Andrew, you've been doing a lot of really awesome work alongside Steve DeRoy in Canada and Muka Apiti in New Zealand, who have been vouching for Indigenous mapping now for a long time. Have you seen examples from them where they're doing storytelling with maps and how that's been applied in their countries? Yeah, yeah, I, I think um, I think some of the coolest maps I've seen ever um, are some of Steve DeRoy's maps, which are land use maps for Indigenous communities. So it's not about just identifying sites, sacred sites or like um, cultural sites, but it's also about how people are using land today. So the more really, really contemporary context of how hunters are like traveling out to different hunting lodges that they've built 
which could be in like the same area as traditional lands, like traditional sites. But Steve and the Firelight Group are mapping out like even just their access to those places. That's like a more contemporary social mapping in, in that Aboriginal heritage space. Yeah, yeah. So it's like modern day use of traditional lands. So they're mapping out like roads where people are travelling to get to their hunting lodges, but then once they get there, they drop the car and then they're hunting on foot for moose and they've mapped out where you know every every time they've made where, where they've made hunting hides and hunted a whole lot of traditional meats they've mapped all that area out and I, I just think those types of maps are the kinds of things we should be doing in Australia too it really shows a modern context to the native title that's that, that connection have. connection to country isn't it's it that's connection. something we have to prove to get native title yeah but to show that yeah, we're still using areas to obtain food, bush foods, natural resources, shows right. that continued connection to country. Yeah, and I, and I think I think that's something to learn from those guys, those traditional use maps and those modern use maps. The other guys um, in New Zealand, Mocha has been doing some really cool stuff with like um, Google Earth, but also using SketchUp, which is like a building, uh, it's like a modelling animator. So you animate a model for um, it's one of their traditional houses that they've got. I can't, I can't remember the name of those traditional houses they have, but each clan has a traditional house where they do um, you know, ceremony in and they were building a new one of those in their, in their communities and um, I think community couldn't work out where they wanted to put it and Mocha was able to use maps to kind of put an animated model inside their traditional lands and show the, how, how they look out onto the ocean to the east or look out to the mountains on the west and it just sort of helped his community to decide where they'd put a modern building. Mm. Is that the example he showed at the Indigenous Mapping Workshop? It was like a YouTube video, it was like a Voyager one? Or am I confused? Uh, he did show one of those too, yeah. Because no, that, that was a really powerful map, the one I'm talking about. Yeah, that was like kind of song journeys across New Zealand. That was amazing. I think everyone who went to, who saw that was like, this is unbelievable. And yeah. that was, again, layers as well. So it was that traditional, but then also seeing uh, how that landscape is used now in a modern sense. Yeah, it was towns and yeah. cities in that as well featured in it but it was the traditional houses up on mountain peaks which just looked super nice and yeah and he actually um in that as well incorporated some of their traditional song as i remember there was like a backing track for that i really love that i love that you can do that with maps that you can bring in all that multimedia as well i don't think people really realize that and i think that's something i see a lot of at indigenous mapping workshop that you don't see other people really making use of as much Maybe that, I mean, because the technologies that we teach on an Indigenous Mapping Workshop, there are all of these options. You can add in a video, you can add in a recording if you want to, of someone speaking about that place. And I do think that the examples that we've seen, especially from Booker, have, have really utilised everything that you can do in the map. Do you have any international examples, Marinda, that you come to your mind? Um, yeah, I do, and I feel a little bit bad because I do not remember the lady's name, but I do believe she was Tongan, and she was doing using OpenStreetMap to, to map Tonga, and part of that was, you know, like a lot of Indigenous people with health problems, they get moved out of country to, the, like, town centres or city centres. Sometimes those elders never get back, and creating those... 3D fly-throughs or open street map and those things where people can not be on country but immerse themselves, I think is another aspect to it. So yeah, you can map a spot on a map, put a pin on a map and map it, but to have a panoramic view that you can then zoom down into and look around, 
I think really helps an elder that may never get back to country and may be sorry for that be immersed back in country. So that's something I think our elders struggle with when they are moved off country. Yeah, right. Thinking about our own backyard now, we talked about some Indigenous examples from New Zealand and Canada there and Tonga. Um, How about Australian? What are some of the best storytelling maps you've seen? Yeah, oh, I've seen some um, cool ones recently, actually. I was up in um, in the Pilbara and I saw these great ones done by Injibundi Aboriginal Corporation, which are basically animation maps and they're built into this uh, a kind of table. So it's like a computer screen table that you can touch. And yeah, they just mapped out like these large landscapes. They had rivers. They'd got kids from the local school to paint the map. But, like they'd, they'd painted all of the like landscape features. So there was like, waterways and then these cool little tree areas and like but each each one of those places was clickable so you could click on a tree or a, or a sacred site or something like that and then this pop-up would come up with elders who who were on that place and they were um, explaining you know, the significance to their community i think i think the thing that was most was so cool about it was just like the participatory kind of nature of that like it was school kids interacting with elders like the elders are interacting with their gis team and like it was just this cool look just like like a very cool collaboration and like really powerful way of like involving different generations in in building maps that reminds me of that time that we had a discussion with it was like the new south wales department of education i think they were doing a project around sort of getting school kids out to talk on country with elders and starting to map out places. You, do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. A kind of the same thing, right? It's about... Yeah, it was, just and that this, it was just that this was presented in such a cool format. It's mm-hmm. like tangible. You can touch it. You can move it around. There's, there's artwork from kids, so it looks kind of rough, but it's still yeah. very cute. And, yeah, just the, just the idea of being able to represent large bits of landscape, you know, in these, like, clickable computer tabletop ways, I think that's just... Like, just being able to interact with a map... It's mm. like probably the you know the, the most priceless bit about that is the, you know, sometimes we look at maps and they're just like on pieces of paper or they're on flat sort of screens. And being able to actually move it around, touch it, expand it, sort of pinch at it, the about user interface. Mm. Like the just, interactivity element. Yeah, it's like exploring it for yourself. Yeah, another, another great one I've seen, this was done by the KJ Group. It's a ranger group up in the Western Desert and they've done some cool maps and on mapping out all of their water places so any place in the western desert which is a rock hole or a soak and i know that those maps country that those guys have to map out is just so big and so wide and vast rugged and rugged so to drive out to some of these places is days and days on sand hills basically and um and so just like knowing that they've put all of that energy and effort into driving out just to map out a rock hole a small site out in the middle of the desert and this, the amount of energy to create those maps is unbelievable. And I know where they started from because they used to have this huge map in the local offices up in Jigalong. It was like this uh, floor-to-wall kind of floor-to-ceiling kind of map that they printed out and elders had put the names for all the jilla like on that, just guessing where they were. And then, yeah, then they'd transferred that map into a full digital mapping project and I think mm. that, like, just in terms of, like, effort and being out on country and, um, you know, like, knowledge exchange, like, those those are the kinds of maps which I just love seeing, like, heaps of effort put in to create something super valuable for, for the future. Something I will say on the opposite side of the spectrum is that, Marinda, you shared with me a map 
think it was like last week, you just sort of pinged me a link to this map and this ABC News story, which you said, I knew you'd love this because I did love that story. It was really good. And I'm going to link the ABC News article in the show notes and link to this map as well, was a map that was created by a non-Indigenous artist, but in conjunction with an Indigenous man called John Scrutton. The artist's name was Robin Francis. It's called The Real Map of Bachelor. It's actually not like a a map that's interactive it's, or anything it's a static map yeah it's not even to scale no but it's it's just really beautifully done and it's the illustrations in it the art um and the way that robin francis has captured what john was saying about his family's history particularly his grandmother who was you know quite reputable and again like i, I really encourage anyone that's listening to the podcast to go to the show notes and read the link to the abc news article but you can actually download a free pdf of this map called the real map of bachelor which is in the northern territory and it's yeah it's free to look at it's worth reading it's very informative it's very entertaining but i want to talk about this map in terms of this idea of reclamation of stories and history which marinda you mentioned earlier in the episode and i know you're very passionate about but this is what john says on the map under the heading of the map he says it gets complicated talking about history people see with their own eyes but this is the way i see it you know Straight up, this map isn't a scale or anything like that, but it's true. Yeah, and that's that's kind of it. And this is that space where John has reclaimed his family story and used the locations significant to his family to tell that story. So that's a, it's a really, really nice example of what we're talking about in terms of like, you know, having the freedom to, to take those stories back, but choosing the medium you want to do it in and telling it the way you guys want to tell it too. I've got a good example of like a project which did a great reclamation of mapping information. It was, um, it was like a few years ago we did this some work with my language community, the Nalama group, and um, basically we were mapping out sites on, on country with elders. And um, one of the resources that we um, started with were these 1860s maps, like really early surveying maps of country like out in the Pilbara. So it was like a, a white fella surveyor who'd gone out to um, our country and he'd landed in Cossack and then by foot basically traversed the Pilbara and surveyed it with his surveying techniques that he was using. And um, as we started to look closely at this map, we realised there was like a heap of Indigenous names all over it. So this is like 1860s. So it was like, what is going on here? And it was pretty obvious that um, he'd taken Indigenous guides with him and they'd led him through the country. Just by doing that, this surveyor had marked out all the tabletop peaks, all of the rivers, all of the waterholes that the Indigenous guides knew. And even though he'd written them in really weird English... Um, you know, had he tried to do of, it phonetically? He had. Like, oh, so there was okay. a lot of like, double E's and double O's and all, all kinds of stuff. But so like, when you said it phonetically... Were you able to then go, oh, it, yeah. he means this? Yeah, yeah. And so oh. we, 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 we took that map and we like showed elders and we read out those names like it's, you know, Myri Pool. And they're like, oh, yeah, Myri Pool, Myri Pool, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, so we, and so we reclaimed every one of those names that that surveyor had put on those 1860s maps. And, and it also got me thinking like I looked at a modern map, like a full driving HEMA map of, um, of the Pilbara, like today, a map that most people would get if they were travelling through the area. And heaps of those names are gone. Like they're all gone from the modern maps. But in 1860s, here are these maps which record more Indigenous knowledge and names for, for our landscape in Australia than, than we do today. 
it was just a really like really weird moment for me to go. Did like, you not know the, those names until you asked your elders about them? Oh yeah, definitely. Like it was that was part of the project was getting younger people involved in you know the knowledge of you know in our country. But I think like the important thing is that like you know it's like a it's a it's a political thing. Like uh, in the last you know since the eighteen sixties, like we've chosen not to keep the indigenous names in those maps that we produce, and it's it's taken like projects like the one we had to do to to read it to reclaim those and put them back into a map that's a resource now for not just our community but for you know for Australia as well. Yeah, we're seeing that with uh, lots of dual naming going on around um, Australia and even just like simple maps like the one I, I think I showed you guys last week, which was just the language names for the capital cities. Oh, that's a recent about, yeah. one going around and that's, you know, I don't know who's created that, but it's all over social media and that's a way of reclaim, reclaiming those spaces um, through language. Yeah, I, I can't, I couldn't. Can imagine that those are the kinds of projects that just need to be done, like not just by an indigenous mapping company, but by you know just like Australian mapping organisations in general. Yeah, just you're saying it shouldn't have to just be indigenous people no. that are doing this research and well, doing this work. Well, it just it just strikes me as like this is in the past in 1860s. How is it that they got it more right than we do today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just something to think about. But I mean, yeah, I think it's. Like reclaiming those old old maps is something that our community found really useful mm. worth thinking about for, for other communities as well. The two of you have actually done a few really cool little mapping projects of your own on the side of what you're doing in, in your sort of day-to-day with business and Winyama and things like that. Andrew, I've seen a few of your maps, Marindra. You know, you will just whip a map out of nowhere. So I remember, <laughs> I remember you did the nation dance one. You're just like, here's just a little something I put together. And it was really beautiful. And you used the mapping icons. Yes, I did. Yes, That's I right, did. you did. And so, like, you've both kind of – I can see that you both just really love what you're doing. Are there any – like, have you still – you don't have to divulge what this is either, but do you still have ideas of, like, cultural heritage maps, um, maps about your history that you, you want to make? Yeah, I think generally you see someone creating a map on their own country and you think, well, I can replicate that for my own country. Mm. You know, New South Wales have a map and it's traditional camps, kind of contact camps, reserves. So it's kind of like all those places Aboriginal people lived over a period of time. So you can see that kind of displacement. I thought that was really cool and that's definitely something we could replicate here in WA. So it's that taking other people's ideas in a, in a way and, and repurposing them for how that looks for your community. So like the output might be different, but it's, it's based on the same idea. Mm. Yeah, some of my research has been... Um, oh, just that, you know, outside. that little bit of research he's yeah. doing, eh, Marinda? Yeah. <laughs> no, we, we, that's right. That's been a personal project of mine to map some of the song traditions that we have in the Pilbara. And um, one of the song traditions we have is called Tubby, and that's a, it's like a history song. So it tells the contact history of our, of our region. Yeah, and mapping... To, to map out that, it's been super interesting to see, you know, where the kind of early contact, um, where the early contact kind of situations happened and, and where our elders, like, felt it was important to record, uh, you know, stories of contact and, and the first time that they'd ever witnessed, you know, things like riding on a truck or... 
I think the um, circus was one of my oh, yeah. favourite. Yeah, yeah. Yep, the elders the spinning out on the circus yeah. for the first time. I haven't heard yeah. about this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I think yeah. one song's about an old father that couldn't work out how the uh, circus person was blowing smoke rings. Yeah, that's right. Like, <laughs> it's just anything that people thought was just new and exciting that they wanted to record. I think one of them, yeah, that was was that the, the fakir, like the Indian fakir who came and yeah. did all these like smoke rings and. The guy, the elders were just like, "How's this guy blowing his smoke?" <laughs> that, and that's a song. This and captured. they made a song about that. Yeah, yeah. So we were able to like map because we knew that that was a circus at Marble Bar. And, Did you um, have to find a sort of archive that the circus was there to verify it? No, we didn't go that far. I mean, the archive is the Tarby song. Is is the, oh, okay. is the fact that that exists there, mm. and um, and that's our community capturing like their own histories. I yeah. think that's that's the key to that project. Is that was an oral is oral history project and it was really about from community's perspective the important things that were going on in their their community so so there's like serious stuff as well like about the first pastoral strike that happened in the 1940s and yeah i believe there's like some references to massacre stuff as well in those tubby songs like so there's like a whole range there's a whole gamut of stuff how people like there's other stuff about how people were struggling with the new work regime that was happening like being kept on stations but yeah the excitement of riding trucks like that was a really that's a really cool one this this um singer's talking about how he's riding a comet basically like mm-hmm. a shooting star and that's how he sees like riding a truck for the first time so yeah those that project's almost done and dusted but that's that's pretty cool that's been a cool one in terms of what's happening like with winyama at the moment you don't know like we said at the start of this you'd been doing a lot of cultural recording you've been up north a fair bit you know do you are you doing or seeing a pickup, I guess, in more cultural recording work and heritage mapping work? Because you've you've also done um, on your website there's a case study for Coongan River, and I know that you did some heritage mapping for them, and they're using that as a tool to liaise between, I think it's the mining companies, isn't it, and the local yeah. community? Yeah, it's like a cultural awareness training map. So these guys are touring over country and showing groups like mining organisations like where their country is and why it's important. And I just got a call from those guys just last week, actually, saying that they're going to deploy it on Monday. That's and, exciting. And, yeah, that they're, um, they're giving cultural awareness training packages to different organisations and their, their trainers are going to lead the, um, you know, lead the classroom through areas of country. I think we are seeing a pickup in the amount of people doing cultural recording. I think just in general there's a lot of interest in digital and Indigenous communities using digital tools. And... Um, so yeah, for us, like Winyama's just really trying to focus on niches that we're good at, and I think this is the, the cultural recording space is really good for us. We know this area, like both Marinda and I have worked in Indigenous heritage for years, and so we know this sector. But I think uh, the big thing for us, and the thing we're going to really concentrate on, is what are the cutting edge tools. So like thinking about like three D visualizations of country, VR, looking at like machine learning, like a whole range of like remote sensing spaces that Indigenous communities could be utilising. And I think that's what I'm really focused on is not just what everyone else is doing, but like where, where can we push the frontier of Indigenous mapping? Yeah, it's in, it's in that Indigenous space that I guess you and I are very knowledgeable in, but maybe people using these technologies aren't aware of this space. So it's, it's applying those technologies in a place where they're not being applied. And I think it really does stem back to those values that we have as Aboriginal people to care for country and using these tools will enable us to do that on a bigger level, bigger scale. 
I think it's a really good space, especially for our, for our rangers, to be able to use that technology to better manage country. Awesome. Guys, we have had so much to talk about today. I've really enjoyed having this conversation. I'm going to be putting in the show notes for the podcast on ngis.com.au. Under the newsroom, you'll find podcasts there. That's where we keep all of our show notes. I'm going to be including some links to some of the resources we talked about. For example, the map that Marinda and I were talking about, which is that static map, um, the real map of Bachelor. There's a bunch of other resources like the mapping icons, which I can link everyone to if you're interested in checking them out. Do follow Winyama on um, LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook. And I know that you guys are actually going to be launching a newsletter soon where you're going to be talking about more of this stuff as well, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, awesome. So there's going to be a bunch of links there. Do head over that way if you want to keep hearing about this stuff because like this has been a really interesting conversation. So if you do have a general interest in Indigenous mapping, yeah, go follow the Winyama guys. They're doing really awesome stuff. Andrew, Marinda, thank you guys again for being on the podcast. It's always so good to have these chats with you. Great to be involved. Thank you, Sarah. Yep, cheers. If you really like what you're listening to on Location Matters, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. You can do that on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You've been listening to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au.